You know, there's also the long conversation that's been going on for many years about the decline of the African university. Um, and it's impossible to talk about that without talking about neocolonialism, for example, or the way kind of these economies are essentially plundered. So it's kind of, you can't really have that conversation about decolonizing knowledges without talking about, okay, what led to the decline of the African university, for example. And then you have to ask yourself broader questions about the structure of capitalist imperialism today and et cetera, et cetera. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome to our third Salvage Live event, brought to you by Haymarket Books and Salvage, a journal of revolutionary arts and letters. Issue 10 of Salvage is being printed and sent to subscribers as we speak, and it is full of poetry, art, and essays, ranging from Palestine to five-year retrospectives on Brexit. All of them hope to deepen and to inform the life of the left, and the essay we discuss today is no exception. We're delighted to have a Salvage author with us, Kevin Akoff. In the strange and surprising left resurgence that marked the second half of the last decade in Europe and the United States, exciting and cautious all at once, exhilarating and disappointing in turn, the left found need of agitation and propaganda, agitprop. With these events, though, we're trying to do something different, to offer a stage for the questions we must ask but cannot always answer, the thorny debates we have and the ones we should have, in our first two events, we discussed debt, credit, and the shape of a socialist political economy today, and then the vexed question of contemporary fascism. Now to the politics of race, nation, and empire. Too rarely does radical politics today interrogate its lexicons. They've changed dramatically. How did we get from anti-colonialism, a name that centers its revolutionary subject, to decolonization, at first a process without a subject? How did we move from decolonizing land to decolonizing reading lists? If these changes are noticed at all, they're usually addressed by partisans, those nostalgic for old languages or scorning them in the name of the new. But what historical transformations might explain these shifts in the gaze and the language of political militants? These are some of the questions we'll ask in this event. This will be Salvage Live. We're your two hosts. I'm Barnaby Rain, and this is Annie Ololoku Tariba. Annie, take it over. Thank you, Barnaby. So, in 2015, a bucket of feces over a statue of Cecil Rhodes thrust the question of decolonization into the centre stage once again. How were we meant to understand ourselves as post-colonial when everywhere around us, hagiographic symbolism embeds itself in the architecture? If truly Cecil Rhodes's colonial misadventures were a thing of the past, then why did contemporary imperial and settler societies cling to his memory so quickly? One would have been forgiven for thinking that the challenge were merely emotional, of the mundane uh, inhumanity of seeing one's colonizer celebrated in a supposedly post-colonial state. 
it would have been neater that way, tearing down some statues, scheduling some decolonial healing consultations, uh, shoehorning some writers of colour onto the reading list. We watched as native hysteria was co-opted and revolutionary fervour commodified. All around us, the zeal to decolonize is turning a profit for the the same institutions of empire. Book deals, research grants, professorships abound, diversity politics in native face, yielding everything but a sturdy solidarity when the colonized actually resist. And what is the afterlife of a colonialism which never died? Decolonization, once the language of empires ridding themselves of territories which were no longer profitable, the language which sought to craft newly dependent states blunted the sword of anti-colonial resistance and now purports a radical transition. So what does this transition look like to the Palestinian people of Sheikh Jarrah who, rend- who are rendered in this decolonization of mind as an uncomfortable anachronism? And how might we understand our relationship to Europe as we reconstitute it and revive it once uh, once again? Uh, sorry. Um, Uh, And how might we understand our relationship to Europe as we reconstitute it and revive it once more, as our resistance to Eurocentricity finds us in opposition to the politics of the radical anti-colonial movements on whose shoulders we stand? Today we're going to talk about a number of different aspects of the question of decolonization, um, and we're really excited to be joined by our guest, Kevin Akoth. And so I'm going to start by asking Kevin a question. Uh, Kevin, in your article, Decolonization and Its Discontents, you begin by talking about the question of UCT, uh, the University of Cape Town, and how the Rose Must Fall movement as it emerged from UCT spread across the world. And so I wondered, um, what was it about South Africa in that moment which made it so ripe for a new movement of decolonization? I think it's particularly in South Africa, it's kind of the unfinished process, I think, of post-apartheid reconciliation that kind of brings a lot of tension to the fore, specifically at kind of like a historically white institution like UCT, which kind of in some ways with its symbolism and its curriculum um, stands in for like a reminder of basically that unfinished process of decolonization, whatever we might call it that, uh, in South Africa as a whole. So I think that's particularly why at that moment, it was very, very important for that conversation to take off in that context. Um, it then spread, obviously, as you know, Ali, um, quite far and wide and um, took off in Oxford as well, which another situation where it's kind of a lot of symbolism in Oxford is kind of reminds us of this unfinished process of decolonization, not just the Rhodes statue, but various other kind of uh, street names, buildings. And there's constant reminders in that kind of just in the physical space about that process of basically that remind us about the continued kind of colonial um, legacies that are still with us today. So I think um, UCT was an interesting um, place for me to start with the essay, Um, just in particular also because I think it's kind of looking back now, that was in 2015. And I think looking back, a lot of people have started to kind of have the conversation of, okay, what happened and how was the institution able to basically respond to what was a very radical impulse for kind of quite radical change. And how was the institution able to neutralize that process and kind of co-opt the language of decolonization to push basically what then amounted to not much more than diversity initiatives. So I think it was very, um, 
it's very obvious kind of, I think in the essay, I talk a little bit about um, the report that came out, I think in 2019, that kind of tries to work through some of the, some of the things that happened with the, with the Roads Must Fall movement in, at UCT. And I think I found the language of the report really, really surprising because it was kind of saying, oh, the problem at UCT was a suppression of black excellence. And or it was using language along those lines, which basically has very little to do with the initial impulse for decolonization that I think the student movement itself was pushing for. So um, I do think that's like a very, very good example to kind of look at the pushback and how the institutions were able to co-opt that. And I think specifically also the image that we saw earlier of kind of that, um, of that airlift of, or basically just the statue being lifted off campus, being not a kind of radical act of it being dragged down or something. It's actually the university deciding to take power back into its own hands, basically, and remove the statue in the way that it would like to, rather than it being like a kind of, um, a pro kind of a gesture that would kind of um, push a more radical movement to then continue on. So it's kind of like cutting out the momentum of that particular process of, or like of that movement towards decolonization. Um, so I think, um, so that was for me very, very interesting to kind of think about at first and also to kind of then use that as a springboard to start talking about colonization more broadly. Uh, decolonization more broadly as we kind of like speak about it in, for instance, universities in the, in the UK and the US today and kind of, you know, what, what are these kind of conversations that we're trying to have and what is it that we're really trying to do? And it's, you know, what allows even, you know, um, um, one of my alma maters is SOAS to do kind of basically use the language of decolonization quite a lot and kind of use the co-op, these student initiatives for decolonization while having, I mean, it's basically the strongest links to, the foreign office, um, various kind of like multinationals, uh, the development sector. And yeah, so I think it's kind of like the university was a really, really good point for me to try and start this essay into thinking about, well, what are these, all these things we want to speak about when we speak about decolonization? And I think particularly just like a, a small comment, I think there was um, just like a couple of months ago, for instance, is just an example of kind of what happens with this language when it kind of gets neutralized is, um, it was not the author's fault, but I think um, Al Jazeera Opinions published a piece that kind of, where they put the headline in there that said, decolonize the IMF, um, which, which is just a bizarre kind of phrase in itself. And I, I don't think it was the author's fault, but for someone in the editorial to be, to think of um, putting that as a headline kind of points to something having gone quite wrong between the historical process of decolonization, which we have in the 50s, 60s, 70s and kind of the way we speak about it today. Interesting. And I do think that this kind of speaks to the relationship between decolonization of old and decolonization today, um, where historically, and Barnaby pointed to this in his introduction, um, you had a decolonizing frame versus an anti-colonial frame. A comrade of mine um, who was involved in the Palestinian revolution talked about how they didn't have a word for decolonization, but they had a word for liberation, right? Um, and so at that time, decolonization was essentially the managed process of statecraft of a new kind of state, the, um, the dependent state, the gatekeeper state that would um, essentially take over from um, colonial authority. And it seems to me that there's a striking mirror 
in the way in which contemporary languages or discourses of decolonization are often asking things of institutions and of states which are themselves implicated in colonial practices. Um, and I wondered if you thought there was any way of salvaging the language of um, decolonization or if that's something that's deeply embedded in it and um, inescapable. Well, I think that's kind of, I think maybe we'll get to some resolution of this particular question as we kind of go along. But I think kind of with the salvageable part of decolonization, I find it's, it's like a very difficult thing to think about because it's, yeah, because this process of asking these institutions that are like so implicated in this process of like basically the statecraft that leads to not decolonization, but rather to different formations like basically, uh, you know, we have neocolonial states or kind of, you know, the continuation of settler colonialism, um, or like institutions that perpetuate that and kind of asking from them to basically decolonize something is kind of asking for a top-down kind of thing to be given, basically. Um, so I think there's something salvageable in the language of decolonization, but I think there's something salvageable in it if we, I think, which is also kind of something that I try to talk about in the essay, if we kind of try to also reconnect to political economy and these questions of statecraft and questions of the nation state, because without, I think, those particular questions, in my opinion, then I think, which is also what I'm kind of trying to argue in the essay, is then it becomes a relatively empty signifier that kind of can be neutralized in this way as the universities have done it. And that can be co-opted in these ways if it's not kind of combined with a very radical critique of political economy kind of political economy and if it's not kind of asking these very very difficult questions about um what kind of state or how what's the role of the state in this process of kind of disentangling um basically these formerly independent states from the colonial relationships with their former colonizers and what are the things that are required for these kind of states to break away and yeah so i think it's unless we ask those very difficult questions which i think is kind of what we're getting into today I think the language of decolonization is pretty empty. And I think particularly the language of decolonial, decolonial studies sometimes I find very frustrating because it kind of makes a very concerted effort to distance itself from these specific, specifically the questions that I think are very, very important to ask today. And it kind of basically makes this retreat, retreat into, uh, into tradition or like kind of some, um, an imagined form of indigeneity that, um, I don't see it as particularly helpful going forward if we really want to think about these questions. Um, so it seems like we are um, identifying two processes in the change uh, from an old language of anti-colonial revolution in the mid-20th century to a language of decolonial studies, partisans, people like Walter Mignolo, um, uh, Maldonado Torres, you, you, you pick up in the, um, in, in the essay that you've written for Selvage. Um, and um, uh, it, it seems like the, the, the two changes are, on the one hand, um, a move from an anti-colonial language which is optimistic about the agency of the oppressed to a decolonial language which names a process uh, initially, this is, I think, the irony I was just getting at, the language of decolonization was a language that came We'll just wait for a second for Bonnie to come back.
um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think what he was going is uh, in terms of, yeah, I think I can pick up the thread on kind of this, uh, basically subjectivity and kind of agency, I think as well. Um, because I think there's like a little section in the essay as well, where I kind of draw, um, quite a bit on the work of, um, Sylvia Kusiponki, who kind of criticizes, um, decolonial studies precisely for this kind of like, um, erasure of a particular kind of agency in the decolonial process, because the, basically the, the indigenous person in that, um, in that discourse just becomes kind of, uh, just an archaic thing from the past, which I think Annie also mentioned earlier. It's kind of just becomes like a relic from the past that's there to represent everything that's opposed to modernity, for example. Um, and I think that's a very different image from, from kind of, um, the way anti-colonial movements would mobilize. Um, and I think that kind of shift in language is uh, especially troubling for me, I think. But I think it has to do, I think it has to do quite a lot with, I think, what um, Annie and I were also going to talk about as well, um, because that's something I try to also address is it has something to do also with the U.S. Ac Academy and its relationship to kind of the people that it studies and basically the process of the language of decolonial studies and decolonization becoming quite enshrined in the institution, basically, in the U.S. Academy, um, which makes it kind of, which builds this process of um, kind of having basically subjects, you don't treat the subjects of your decolon decolonial process as subjects. Um, and then it's kind of using them just basically to make this argument about uh, the coloniality of knowledge while kind of existing in these structures that are so implicated in kind of this colonial, in the continuity of the colonial process. Um, so it's kind of this contradiction of sitting in this one institution, which is not a personal fault necessarily, but it's kind of like, if the if the theoretical discourse basically um, justifies this kind of relationship to these indigenous broader indigenous struggles, for example, um, then I don't think it's a particularly useful way to approach the, um, the process of decolonization. That's something that's somewhat related to kind of what we were talking about. I think just the conversation between decolonial studies and uh, kind of this more this older tradition of like anti-colonial thinking is exemplified, I think, quite well in um, in kind of the critique that decolonial studies has of um, the late and I think it's kind of basically there's a lot of accusations of um, Samir Amin trying to basically fight coloniality on its own terms and being very unsuccessful in that kind of process. It's kind of obsessed with the purity of the decolonial project rather than kind of the messy practicality of um, um, some sort of liberation within the context of actually existing post-colonialism and actually existing capitalist modernity. And it seems to be more concerned with the purity of this theoretical discourse and the actual process, which is a lot more messy than that, of trying to disentangle um, from these colonial relationships. And I think that's kind of exemplified. So I think the kind of decolonial studies, Minolo has this critique very prominently of Samir Amin, I think exemplifies kind of the tension between um, coloniality as a kind of discourse and kind of the older anti-colonial tradition and the people who have kind of come from that and have built on that. Mm -hmm.
one, and I'm very sorry, by the way, for the viewers who have, are just beginning to get accustomed to our salvage live norms of dealing with technological <laughs> issues and baby issues all at once. Um, I said last time when we had this problem, and I'm sure it'll keep happening, that uh, even online we're still the left, so we're still we still have to be chaotic. Um, but um, I, I wanted to ask you about um, these kind of two processes that I think we're naming at once in the in the contemporary move to a language of decolonization, which is on the one hand this thing which you've now given us a great account of um, uh, uh, in terms of the move from anti-colonial agency and subjectivity to a decolonial process. At the same time, as academia encourages us to celebrate constantly the agency of the oppressed, sometimes in ways that are kind of naive, you know, actually there is a structure and it's not all just agency. Um, but at the same time, as we have this kind of paranoid desire to celebrate agency, it's because we've lost faith maybe in um, in, in anti-colonial revolutionary agency, which was a mid-20th century process. And instead, now we have um, the need to decolonize from the center using that language of decolonization that comes from Britain and France, not from anti-colonial revolution, as Annie was pointing out, Palestinian friends saying they didn't have an Arabic word for it. They had a word for liberation. Um, so at the same time as that's happening, there's also a move from, so there's a move from anti-colonial uh, revolution to decolonial process. And there's also a move, as I mentioned at the start, from decolonizing land, nations, to decolonize your mind, decolonize your reading list, uh, a move from colonialism as, as, as a fact to colonialism as a kind of metaphor. Um, and I wonder how we think about these two processes happening at once in the contemporary language of decolonization, because it seems to me like there's one way in which that second process could look like a kind of political advance, which is to say, okay, you know, take take a but David Scott takes a text like Edward Said's Orientalism and says, this is the moment where you say we've liberated countries. Of course, that's not Said because he's Palestinian, but we've liberated lots of countries um, and seen that that liberation isn't total. So now we have to go on to think about these 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 deeper problems of culture and ideology in which colonial. Uh, power relations still reside. So it could look like a kind of radicalization beyond just we need national governments to we need to question all of the basic rudiments of our society and its, and its, um, uh, its formation through racial power and colonial power. Um, but at the same time, it's also a kind of retreat away from the possibility of politics um, uh, away from the possibility of transforming your social relations away from questions of political economy because you're at the end of history and don't really believe, and you're in David Scott's terms, you're after the Bandung moment. You don't really believe anymore in uh, in the possibility of of social transformation. Not because you're just an idiot pessimist, but because that possibility really is is retreating. Um, so it seems to me there's this tension between a kind of possibility of an advance through the language of um, decolonization, extending into new realms, which sure which surely are you know education surely is an important. Sorry, I was, sorry, sorry. I was just gone for a second. My bad connection. I was saying these two realms surely are real spaces in which colonial power resides, like the university. Um, and it might be subtler than the policeman's uh, baton or the soldier's gun, but it's important to the reproduction of colonial power. Someone like Steve Biko in South Africa was was talking this subtler language of psychological liberation, even in that anti-colonial moment in the seventies. So, uh, do we think of, of of the turn from the anti-colonial to the decolonial just as a negative thing, or do we think of it as something that could have been positive but was kind of overdetermined by uh, a, a, a moment of retreat historically in, in world historic terms, um, rather than being an advance. Is there a possibility? Um, I know as someone, as was Annie, who was involved in the Rose Must Fall campaign in Oxford, that many of the people uh, charting that campaign wanted to use the statue as an opportunity to talk about racism 
uh, in ways very different from those that were then picked up by the British establishment, which wanted to make it all about, uh, in a contemporary language, the microaggression caused by walking past a statue, uh, which was an aggressive statue of a hateful racist, where many of the people authoring the campaign wanted to talk about racism much more broadly. Um, so how contested do you think is the terrain of decoloniality? Um, is it owned by the likes of Mignolo? Um, uh, and, and what openings does it provide for the left if it charts a defeat and a kind of possible advance in the 70s, 80s moment? So I don't think it's, um, I think you're completely right. I don't think it's monopolized by basically the likes of Minola and the decolonial study school. And I think it leaves space for a lot of other kind of options. And I do agree that we can treat it as an advance, basically. But I think even if we think about the language, for instance, of decolonizing our minds, which comes from Ngugi, um, but the way Ngugi is kind of talking about decolonizing the mind is not purely as that. You can write, read another essay from exactly the same period, which is very much in, interested in kind of building of institutions, for instance, and kind of the process of state building and the questions around nationhood. And it's kind of, it doesn't basically sideline these questions just to talk about only decolonizing the mind. So I think it's kind of a thing that must happen basically at the same time. But I think the problem more that I had with, oh, is kind of with the dominant kind of way of talking about decoloniality. It kind of pushes those questions aside rather than trying to address them simultaneously. And kind of the question of knowledge gets separated from the questions of kind of the political economy of higher education, for example, which it very much cannot be separated from. But it kind of then becomes this more abstract thing. Um, and I think also just what you're talking about, kind of the post kind of Bandung moment and kind of the shifts towards kind of more an interest in these broader critiques. Um, I think it's kind of because the story of, of national liberation has been told as, I think, in retrospect, as sort of um, a kind of inevitable process. It kind of is this process that inevitably leads to retrenchment of the nation state. And it inevitably leads to kind of this kind of um, taking on of the state form of that was basically that was the colonial state form. And I think that kind of um, I think what I'm trying to push for also in the essay is uh, a reconsideration of kind of that idea that it was in inevitable or a questioning of the idea that it was inevitable because the process by which that happened, um, there's a lot of kind of messy stuff that takes place. I think, um, so I was writing something else recently about, um, particularly political assassinations during the period, like in, for example, Kenya between, um, kind of 63 and maybe like the seventies. And that actually, um, made like a huge difference in terms of, um, the types of kind of proposals for a different type of economic program that could be implemented and kind of leads to basically a defensive kind of a colonial type state that's um, structured around primary quantity exports, for example. Um, and so it's kind of those options. I think it's what um, Adam Getachev as well points out, I think very well, is that um, I think it's engaging in the same project, which is trying to go back and also kind of figure out what these alternatives to what was the outcome, what was then the outcome of those um, processes of decolonization, is what were these um, alternatives that existed at the height of decolonization? And is there anything to be kind of salvaged from, from that particular moment? And that could help us in thinking about um, what we want to achieve when we think about decolonization today, even. So I think it's kind of the tension between those is, there is an advance, of course, but I think um, the advances come at the expense of kind of sidelining um, this other conversation that I think also needs to be had alongside it. So it is, there is some sort of advance in being able to talk about kind of these curricula because you do need to talk about the curricula, for, for instance. Um, but I think in absence of kind of 
this big critique of, you know, there's also the long conversation that's been going on for many years about the decline of the African university. Um, and it's impossible to talk about that without talking about neocolonialism, for example, or the way kind of these economies are essentially plundered. So it's kind of, you can't really have that conversation about decolonizing knowledges without talking about, okay, what led to the decline of the African university, for example. And then you have to ask yourself broader questions about the structure of capitalist imperialism today and et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's just kind of having basically those conversations need to happen alongside each other. And I think I'm more pushing from the other angle to bring this old anti-colonial, those priorities also back to the forefront and into the conversation, which I think have been relatively unfairly dismissed. Yeah, I mean, you you have in the essay um, an amazing example of this, which is a single term and its different uses, which is you point out that people in decolonial studies use the term delinking uh, to talk about their project and say, well, of course, this is the term that Samir Amin famously used. And when Samir Amin was talking about uh, the Marxist uh, third worldist, when Samir Amin was talking about uh, delinking, he meant controversial though it was, including on the radical left, a program of uh, delinking from the capitalist world system. It was it was about uh, trying to change how value chains worked. And it was a politics that, of course, had its antecedents and its advocates from Nehru to Thomas Sankara, uh, of, of, of people talking in an anti-colonial moment about primary commodity producers being locked into dependence on trade relations with the, with the colonizer. Um, and then you say, and now when people talk about delinking, uh, when in an essay where Walter Mignolo talks about it, for example, um, it's about changing your mental attitudes. Um, and it does feel often like these conversations are seen as one or the other. Um, and, and there isn't enough work on connecting um, the foundations in the political economy of the capitalist world order to uh, and how that affects um, our psychic states. Um, um, and it, but there's also a kind of strange thing about time there, where it seems like conversations about racism and imperialism today are had as if we're really living in a post-racist, post-imperialist world, so that the European Parliament can declare that Black Lives Matter and can express its horror, presumably, at a past which was so racist. And this is really kind of disorienting, because it's the same European Parliament that is drowning thousands of people in the Mediterranean um, because they're racially locked out of uh, nation states and signing neo-colonial deals with Libya to send migrants to slave labor camps and signing deals with uh, settler colonial apartheid state in Palestine, which slaughters an indigenous population. So there's also this kind of weird ex- sort of temporal experience where you almost you sort of expect that either um, the world is racist and says so, or we're making serious progress and overcoming racism. And then we can work out what to do with the statues from a racist past. But instead, it feels like there's a racist present and the discourse is as if racism is a shadow and a legacy and is something that belongs in the past. And that's true of colonialism and imperialism as well, right? There's a kind of strange temporal lag where people want to talk as if something that's happening in the present is a problem of the past. So you have to clean up your attitudes. It's like we can focus on the microaggressions now because the macroaggressions are gone, but they're both still there, really. Yeah, I think just just a brief comment on that. It's just, I think that you're spot on there, Barnaby. And I think um, it's kind of, I think uh, a thing that I've come across a lot of times, like, even in kind of leftist spaces, mentioning the words imperialism and it kind of being basically assumed that it's the historical kind of event of imperialism. That's something that was there in the past, but that no longer exists. And I think um, I can kind of see that um, in in kind of um, a lack of interest in kind of the political economy kind of literature that deals directly with imperialism. 
which is kind of, um, which there's quite a lot of, but I think there seems to be very little interest in that literature, which is kind of building on Marx, but taking it basically through Lenin and then taking it also through Amin and kind of the critiques of these various articulations of kind of like uh, a Marxian political economic critique of imperialism. And I think this, um, that's an interesting tradition that I think has received much too little, att- like too little attention, I think, to this day. Um, I think, Annie, you wanted to come in? Yeah, definitely. Um, so it just kind of struck me. I think that there's a way in which we are pushed by contemporary discourse, and I think you're pushing back against this, Kevin, um, to think about, on the one hand, there being this old school Marxist tradition, Marxist-Leninism of anti-colonialism, which um, only really cares about the serious questions of political economy. And on the other hand, are people who understand that it's much more complex than that, and then we have to think about the mind and culture, etc. And I think there's, we run a risk of rewriting history, right? Because many of these revolutionary movements are centrally concerned with the question of culture, centrally concerned with the question of both um, moving as a society to transform social conditions, but understanding that the transformation of those social conditions and social relations are a necessary prerequisite to the kind of decolonization of the mind that we speak about today, right? And so I do think there's a way in which um, the left has um, allowed itself, in essence, to be pigeonholed or to be um, cut off from, shunted off from um, such a rich and complex history, right? It was the... um, uh, if you think about the Pan-African Cultural Festival, if you think about um, the language which said that, you know, culture is a weapon, right? Understanding that the mental well-being of a people is centrally important. It's also the kind of same revolutionary politics which produced an understanding of revolution as a politics of love, right? And today that all seems hollow, but that's because the concept of love that we have, the concept of mental well-being that we have is so hollowed out of any kind of material content because of neoliberalism. And I think that, you know, tying to what Barnaby said, I do think it's important to not take the question of decolonization on its own, right? It's just one of many threads of how neoliberalism has managed to completely de-link language from meaning, um, <laughs> to, use a, to use the term used in your essay. But, um, you know, uh, Barnaby gives the example of anti-racist politics and the question of race. And I think this kind of ties really neatly to one of the other questions I wanted to ask you about how... Um, you know, in a sense, I feel that, I feel, I sense that the language of decolonization and decoloniality in terms not just of its fetish of the mind, but also the fetish of Europe, right, um, which is central to it and the rejection of both modernity and Eurocentricity, um, works in a way to essentially continue to breathe life into the same, you know, hollow constructs which are given to us or offered to us by by the period of colonization and its continuation and afterlives, insofar as something which is not dead can have an afterlife. And so I'm really interested in how um, there's another dynamic going on in the post-colonial world um, in which the project of national liberation is in essence a project of class compromise, right? Um, And the achievement of the independent nation state 
is the realization of the aspirations of the national bourgeoisie, right? And so long as we continue to draw the line of demarcation when it comes to questions of colonization and imperialism along the lines of countries which are colonized and countries which colonize, rather than peoples who are colonized and peoples who colonize, um, and I'm thinking here of the kind of 60s argument of the black ghetto as the internal colony and thinking about working class areas essentially as internal colonies, right? Um, what we end up doing is allowing the work of colonization or of being colonized to do the abstracting work of essentially shielding a group of national bourgeoisies who, who are very happy to profit from the continued um, experience of neocolonialism and imperialism. I wondered what you thought about that. Um, yeah, yeah I, think that's, I think that's totally correct. And I think um, there's something that I think um, what I'm very interested in doing as well, and this is in another essay that I've recently written that's um, coming out soon, but it's kind of basically trying to get into more detail into that process of basically how that national bourgeoisie captures power in the process of national liberation and kind of the factional infighting that takes place, for instance, because that is a process. It's not, um, I think what I, that's what I was saying earlier. It's not um, at that particular moment of decolonization. It's not a done deal, which is going to win out or which Basically, there's other articulations that are not the national bourgeoisie's articulation of what it means to um, basically uh, free oneself from these colonial structures. Um, and, you know, I kind of I was looking at um, the process in Kenya and I was looking at the process in Mozambique, for example, um, but also in Tanzania. Um, and it's kind of even if you have the project of decolonization, that kind of becomes a very stale kind of project like in Tanzania, for example. Um, kind of remembering that there was a communist alternative even at that point in time that was the Zanzibari Communist Party, which was pushing for an entirely different program of national liberation, which both of these are encompassed in the same kind of category of national liberation tradition. But one of them is like distinctly Marxist and the other one, for example, it's not. So I think it's kind of, um, there's something about disentangling also those two kind of strands of thinking about um, national liberation in the process of decolonization, because I think, yeah, Yanni, on, your, on the one hand, you're right, is the national bourgeoisie one out, and that's the program of kind of when we speak about colonized countries or whatever, and we kind of basically speak about, yeah, yeah, we kind of lean into the project of these national bourgeoisies. But I think it's kind of, yeah, thinking about national liberation as this project where there was two different currents or multiple different currents at the height of kind of decolonization. Um, the national bourgeoisie being one of those, and I think more radical programs being articulated by other parties and groups. So I think it's um, well worth, I think part of the thing that I'm also doing with the long essay is trying to push in a direction of kind, kind of trying to um, understand those a little bit more, those kind of alternatives that existed at that point, and those kind of um, formations that were basically fighting against what was the, then the outcome of national liberation, which is kind of this reinforcement of the nation state. Um, so I think it's very, it's definitely worth revisiting those. And I think also what Annie was saying, um, when we kind of um, think about the question of particularly um, so the social revolution in, in kind of the national liberation process and kind of, you know, if we have the kind of project of the national bourgeoisies, that social revolution doesn't really take place. But then kind of, you know, um, we have this in Mozambique, for example, with the limo, um, kind of when you look at the liberated zones right before kind of they gained an independent state. And then you kind of have this process of the social revolution taking place in these liberated zones. But then through other processes of political assassinations and kind of other interventions, 
it becomes basically impossible to continue this kind of process of the social revolution. And what we end up with is basically just a subservient state over the longer period of time, which kind of is what the Falimo government in Mozambique is at the moment. I have a question about this, um, if I can jump in, which is um, uh, at the end of the essay, you uh, raise the example of Eduardo Monlane, the one of the founders of Frelimo in Mozambique, and, and talk about John Saul, uh, the great uh, academic in solidarity with, I think he actually went to teach in Mozambique. Or, I mean, he, yeah, he yeah, yeah. I think he was here for a very long time there, yeah. Um, um, and, and him he, and Saul sort of giving Monlane as, as, as an example of a a kind of heroic uh, uh, intellectual and leader of the of that anti-colonial struggle. Uh, uh, Samora Michel, also the first independent president of Mozambique, there's a there's a speech where he, after the victory, repeats the anti-colonial slogan, Aluta Continua, the struggle continues, after they've beaten the Portuguese, and then says, contra que, against what? And says, against illiteracy, against tribalism, against... There's a very, very clear sense, obviously, in the Marxism-Leninism of Frelimo's uh, 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 anti-colonialism that it's a social revolution as well. So then there's a question about whether we think of the tragedies and the defeats and the difficulties of those kinds of projects as being um, problems of their moment and of the external challenges and impositions they faced. So the, the anti-colonial project in Mozambique suddenly won and because there's a coup and a revolution in Portugal, but then the apartheid state in South Africa, of course, supports a wrecking force to, to destroy the country. Um, so is it, you know, is, is it apartheid that, that, uh, that makes Mozambique into a dictatorship? Um, or do we talk about, because if we're doing the work now of revisiting these earlier horizons, which you're saying we've lost touch with in mainstream anti-racist decolonizing politics today, because we've dismissed them all as well. They were invested in the nation form, so they were actually colonial as well. And actually you're saying, and people like Adam Getachew and, and, and Frederick Cooper and Gary Wilder are saying, actually, there were much more debates that don't, don't lump than with, uh, with uh, Eurocentricity. So if we're trying to return to the mid-20th century debates, do we return to them and face their problems by saying um, we can account for most or all of their problems because of the huge challenges they faced, whether in the political um, wars of their of colonial enemies or in the economic problems of a world capitalist system that they were illiquid? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we can hear. Sorry, I didn't catch that last part. But, but, um, 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 yeah, but just I just want to say, do, do, do we do we think of this as do we think of the problems they faced as external political and economic uh, challenges? They had a developed language right from Kwame Nkrumah's essay about neocolonialism. They had a developed language in anti-colonial struggles about the difficulties of achieving supposed sovereignty as an independent state when you exist in a capitalist world order uh, that you as an independent state alone can't fight. It's a debate going right back to the Haitian Revolution and C.L.R. James's classic reading of, of the problem of the Haitian Revolution. You're free, supposedly, but you're still a tiny island, so you, you, you send yeah. people back to work on plantations. What else can you do? Is that a tragedy um, uh, in which there's no other option? Or do we want to think critically about the ideas, the politics... Um, of those moments, of those anti-colonial struggles that we want to venerate and think that there were better options not pursued. Um, how do we see that balance between problems of the moment and problems of the ideas? Um, I think that's kind of, it's such a difficult one to kind of revisit because, it's, of course, it's not only just the external circumstances because there's other things happening at that political and historical moment. That, so it's not just the kind of thing of, oh, it's impossible considering these kind of um, revisiting just it, so revisiting these traditions is not the point of revisiting them is not to basically say that there was no other option given the external circumstances that were basically 
that that were in place and there's nothing else that could have been done. I think it's kind of actually trying to revisit them historically. And I think for me, it's more just, um, it's of course, it's trying to put those ideas into context. But I think it's um, looking at what those figures were writing or those kind of revolutionaries were writing at the time and saying at the time in response to this kind of seeming inevitability that their revolution would be crushed. Um, so it's kind of um, their articulations of these different options that they that they have. So I think there is something um, worth revisiting there that's not solely about um, just saying that this process um, basically was stopped by external forces or whatever. Um, so I think is that where you were you were getting at, Barnaby? I don't know if I got if I if I understood you right. Yeah, I'm. I, I think the, the 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 question I'm trying to pose is. Um, how we tell a story about the 20th century and before it that balances a sense of the enormous obstacles that anti-colonial revolutionary processes face with a sense of some of the politics of those processes that we would want to do differently. Um, whether that's, uh, as Annie was saying, national independence as a project of class compromise um, and, uh, and, and the difficulty of a properly socially revolutionary process in forming new nation states in which you need some kind of accommodation with a local bourgeoisie, or whether it's thinking through problems of um, dictatorship and autocracy and trying to work out the degree to which that's uh, a necessary uh, step because you're surrounded by external enemies, which can easily become a kind of apologetic language of tyranny um, uh, and, uh, and, and how we want a democratic politics of, of liberation, which is a problem for socialist politics and a problem for anti-colonial politics. So it's about how, how we do the balance between an awareness of the obstacles and not, and, and, and not being aware of them is kind of classic, uh, you know, CIA move to, to denigrate people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, it's, I think you neither want to fall into the CIA thing nor the Stalinist position of, uh, Oh, it's all external enemies. And that's why I've got to send you to the gulag. So how we tell that tension in the anti-colonial case. Yeah. And I think that's like, I mean, it's one of the things that I wish I could answer for you very clearly, but I can't. I think it's kind of thinking about also that process of just how do we kind of um, salvage kind of the democratic elements of this particular process of national liberation, which is like, I think for me, a very, very, very crucial question is just kind of like, okay, looking at the social revolution and kind of like, what are the particular kind of articulations of democratic programs that are implemented in this kind of, in this kind of process? But I think it's kind of, um, so it's looking at, for example, again, I think it's just because I, I find it's a very useful example of Mozambique and just kind of um, basically kind of having democratic experimentation in these liberated zones that you're kind of pushing outwards and outwards, but you still kind of capture the state. So it's kind of, it's the tension between those, it's the tension between those two processes, I think. That's particularly interesting for me. It's the thing, it's the kind of the articulation of like, a certain type of um, radical democratic kind of impulse during the liberation war. And then, but the liberation war being aimed or being having to kind of face up to basically creating this independent nation state. So I think these are the tensions that I think, I mean, I'm trying to think through in this essay, for example, but I think that require more than an essay to think through because they're very, 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 very difficult questions that I think are kind of the challenge of that kind of that process of, I think when we talk about really about decolonization, that's kind of the process. Or when we talk about decolonial, um, that's kind of what we should be talking about. And I think what I'm trying to do is animate that conversation. Um, 
And then there's the question about how much these are historical questions. So how much this is about working out a story about the past and how much they're questions about the future um, in a very different world. Um, so for example, there's a historical question that you revive about the internationalisms of anti-colonial world-making that were not just all about a nation-state. Um, but given that the world became a world of nation-states after a world of empires, even though, as you say, it wasn't thought at the time that that was the inevitable, um, how do we now orient ourselves to the work of opening up again, reawakening those debates, given we know how the story ended? Maybe we don't want to say ended yet, but um, when we're, yeah, how much of this is a history project and how much? I, think, I mean, I mean, the thing is, for me, it's uh, they're very connected because the historical project just means that we look, if we kind of dismiss it as, okay, this was inevitable. And if we kind of reconsider it, that makes us look at the debates that were taking place at that particular moment in more detail, I think. And that makes us pay, pay attention to ideas that were kind of a voice at the time, because I don't think it's necessarily like the case that um, all the ideas, um, or I think that's basically one of the problems that I think I have with decolonial studies. It's basically saying that these questions that they were asking themselves, then we've superseded those, like we've surpassed those questions and they're no longer relevant to us. So I think that where, whereas I, for instance, think they're entirely relevant. I mean, if we're talking about the, the things that need to be, of course, updated, but I think it's the same way you read, um, yeah, you might read all the political economy today and kind of, um, but people have worked on it and built upon it and, kind of like made it fitting for the contemporary moment. And I think that's a process that hasn't happened with national liberation thought. It's either like hagiographical kind of work on how great Julius Nyerere was, or it's um, the entire project was doomed, but it's never kind of, okay, let's build on some of the ideas that people were bringing out. It's rather a dismissal or kind of a disregard, but it's never kind of a concerted effort to kind of come to grips with the questions that were being asked at that particular moment. So I think it's both. So it's a historical so it's kind of, I think what, I, what I'm also trying to push for as well, it's because um, it's not to be dismissed that there's like basically historical work that needs to still be done and that should be done as quickly as possible about some of these movements, just in terms of archival work and just like making sure that some of these things are actually documented in the, in the right way. But then it's not purely a historical project. It is very much about kind of finding those conversations and kind of building upon, upon them and then looking at the world today and figuring out how they might help us kind of understand contemporary imperialism, for example, or contemporary neoliberalism, even, for example, because that would be a crux uh, or like an interesting moment in the development of that also. It's really interesting. And I think that um, I do think we've not yet worked out how to relate um, to the history of the national liberation movements, as you mentioned. And I think part of that problem is a comrade once said that one of the most difficult parts of handing down history is recognizing, especially in the case of some of um, countries like Palestine, that not a single inch of land was liberated. Um, and if we even thinking about countries which ostensibly got independence, recognizing that that independence did not mean freedom. Um, and so I do think there was, sense that there was a sense in which we have yet to contend with what is different about the world that we inhabit today compared to the world that they inhabited. Um, and not just that, um, I think we've, like you said, not gotten 
not gotten the tools yet to understand defeat and to deal with defeat with a kind of critical different uh, distance that's necessary. Apologies, we have a second guest now. Um, so um, I wanted to kind of tie that to another question that I wanted to ask. Um, and this was around um, the idea of um, decolonization as it's presented today as a marker of time or a marker of transition. Right. And I wondered if, um, you know, you can't really speak of the process of decolonization or transition to decolonization. It's kind of feeling like a long Brexit now of that transition period. Um, you can't really speak of that in a world in which there are actively, and I kind of flag this off the top, there are active settler colonial projects, right, in which people are still experiencing ethnic cleansing, in which um, the colony is certainly not dead, right? Um, but I wonder what it does to our analysis that that is this, the focal point. And I'm kind of thinking about how um, the dots are very rarely connected, right? You know, people can speak about um, solidarity with the Palestinian liberation struggle at the same time as speaking about decoloniality, at the same time as speaking about anti-racist struggles and thinking about how the language of imperialism um, for people in the 20th century tied all of these threads together allowed us to think the question of settler colony alongside the question of racism, alongside the question of police brutality, alongside the question of gender dynamics, right? Um, and how perhaps one of the things that we're contending with today has been, perhaps one of the things we're contending with today has been the um, essentially the fracturing or fragmentation of the political languages available to us. I think we've lost the capacity to think about not necessarily grand theories, but attempts to understand totality um, as opposed to kind of individualized dynamics. And I think that's kind of bolstered by the way in which so much of the political language is available to us, not least the question of decolonization when, as it centers on the individual is about turning inwards. And I, I think we've all agreed here that that's a reflection of, I guess, the weaknesses of the moment in which we find ourselves and the limited options that we see available to us. I think we kind of cling or look for the lowest hanging fruit. Um, and I'm not going to ask you the question that I really want to ask, <laughs> which is how do we get ourselves out of this quagmire? Because I don't think anybody's equipped to ask the answer to that question in today's moment. Um, but I wanted to ask what kind of work do you think we need to be doing in this moment? If we're to understand this as a moment in between and for to understand this as a moment with very little revolutionary potential, what kind of work would we to be doing as historians, as social scientists, as people with a radical politics? So I, I think this kind of relates somewhat to two of the questions that have been asked, I think, in, in the comments. And I think one's about the academy and decolonization and the other's about kind of um, anti-imperialist activism from within kind of the places of imperial power. I think. Um, there's something to be said for like solidarity activism, for example, because it's just because it's kind of a lull of revolutionary or, or, or it feels like it's not a particularly revolutionary moment in the kind of context of the imperial uh, core, basically. That doesn't mean that's the same case everywhere else. Um, so I think there's something, uh, there's a lot to be said for extra academic, or like outside of the academy solidarity activism taking place and um, 
kind of as Andy uh, Higginbottom has suggested in the comments, kind of support for radical social, popular social movements in the global south. And it's kind of, um, I think sometimes with the solidarity activism, it's difficult because um, there'll be causes where actually not a lot of attention is given to those particular kind of causes. But I think that could do with a lot more kind of energy and reinvigoration that are not um, basically getting the attention all the attention to take. So I think there's definitely something to be said for, for doing solidarity activism. And I think very much engaging in kind of these different struggles in the global South that are ongoing today. Um, in the global North, I think, and particularly like, for example, in the UK, that's a, an entirely different question. I think um, that requires a lot of, a lot of thinking through. <laughs> okay so <laughs> we do have some more questions from the audience in the chat and i think it is a good point to start feeding some of these questions in um so we've got a question from steve uh to you kevin which says you speak of different alternatives at the time of independence and what could have come about with the more radical alternatives if world capitalism continued would we have national liberation in one state <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. Um, yeah, I think that's, <laughs> that's kind of not the way I was particularly addressing it because I'm thinking more about kind of a moment of kind of uh, tricontinental solidarity, for example. So it's definitely all kind of a moment of pan-Africanism. So it's not about building kind of national liberation is not a project of just like liberating the one state. And I think that's kind of why, you know, that's kind of the thing why towards the end of the essay, I bring up André Blouin, um, who was an anti-colonial activist. Um, who kind of basically was engaged in loads of different struggles in Guinea, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and was very much a part of this national liberation tradition. But I think in a very pan-Africanist way, for example, where it's not about national liberation in one state, she kind of spent her time working in all these different states to kind of achieve basically this project. So national liberation being a project, I think the more radical kind of um, dream of national liberation is a project that is trying to basically um, confront capitalism and imperialism and not just in one state. And I don't think any, they believed that that was just possible even just with one kind of bolstered state. So I, so I think these alternatives are speaking to an entirely different um, kind of way of conceptualizing even sovereignty that goes, I think, far beyond the idea of kind of national liberation in one country or socialism in one country and is articulating an entirely different political program than that. Just to follow on from that, I mean, welcome to our guest, Maisha. Um, just to follow on from that, um, I think one of the most inspirational aspects of the national liberation moment for me um, was... Um, a resolute refusal at the separation of nation and people. Um, and I think one of the aspects of contemporary discourse around decolonization, which I find so striking, is that it centers itself or fetishizes in such a kind of grotesque way the state um, and what the state can do and the surrender of authority to the state. Um, even as it purports to think in radically new ways or radically old ways, one might say, about the world. Um, 
And so I'm kind of trying to think about this question of the state and the increasing presence of the state in our lives under neoliberalism um, as a backdrop to this as one iteration of like many different, because um, I think that we can think about this across the board, the retreat into casserole feminism, if we think about um, the um the you know the response to racism being the introduction of hate crimes right um and so the question is how do we navigate that fundamental tension which i think you point to towards the end of the essay um in quite an interesting way between um the nation state which i think at times can be an imprecise definition, right? Because we're not in any meaningful sense comparing like for like all states are created in the context of imperialism and so they're fundamentally different. But... I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, um, the fundamental tension between the nation state and the strategic importance that it has. Um, <laughs> you don't want to. One second. are also single mothers. Like that's that's an important kind of world to have, right? I mean, um. So, um, how do we navigate the fundamental tension between the strategic importance of the state, right, as a way of alleviating or ameliorating the worst excesses or impacts of capitalism? Um, as we have yet to find a more effective way of distributing resources among the population, right, Um, in countries that require it, and the long-term aspiration of delinking the nation from the state, if that makes sense. It's it's a very interesting question that I'm also kind of at the moment trying to think through, particularly also um, in the context of Mahmoud Mamdani's new, new book, for example, which does very much tries to do this, but does this probably in the way that, Annie, you wouldn't want to, it, it basically argues for a delinking of state and nation, but it says the nation is the bad thing and the state is, we can just have a reconfigured citizenship and kind of make the state work in a different way. So it's kind of pointing towards the nation as being the problem in that configuration of the nation state. Um, but I think there's an interesting debate going on that I think I have yet to fully resolve for myself between, I think, Mahmoud Mandani involved in it and uh, Michael New Cosmos. Uh, the late uh, Ernest Wambadia Wamba, kind of about basically that constellation of the nation state and what we need to do to think about it and the separation, particularly what you mentioned, Annie, also between um, nation and people and the process by which the nation is separated from the people in kind of maybe a process of decolonization that we were speaking about. So I think it's um, it's one that I, I haven't I haven't fully been able to come to grips with yet. Because I, um, yeah, reading Mamnatani's work, I disagree with that quite a lot in terms of um, just because it's, again, very dismissive of kind of the cult or like the process of national liberation, because it kind of sees it once again as like, because um, I think he's more concerned with kind of the nation as a concept and how it constructs permanent majorities and minorities, but then fails to question the problem of kind of the state itself. Yeah. So I think it's kind of pushing those conversations a little bit further but I think that's just quite a very very challenging question to resolve it's it's interesting we have um 
a few questions in the chat about this. Um, so Annie raised Steve's question, which I thought was a good question about, uh, I think exactly the right question. What would national liberation, uh, what would it mean to have an anti-colonial project that didn't reduce itself to separate nation forms in a system of world capitalism? The most you could hope for would be one single global uh, nation state that was still a state whose, whose job was to manage a thing called an economy and whose job was to manage class relations, um, uh, uh, even if it was much bigger and extended across, well, they didn't have borders. And then there's another question um, from, I think, Benjamin, um, who asks, uh, okay, if, uh, if national states are no good, is the alternative a, a plurinational republican framework? Is the alternative federation? Well, you know, Gary Wilder has that book about, uh, about the federation as an alternative um, to nation. But I think what you're getting at has really much broader relevance for the whole discussion about problems in different ways of constructing decolonization, which is that the problem of the nation state for anti-colonial revolutionaries wasn't just the problem of nation, borders, pitting people against each other on the basis of where they're born, perhaps, but also the problem of state, because it was a, the, the anti-colonial politics was a politics of self-determination, which wanted people to have power over their lives and therefore was opposed to colonialism as a form of the alienation of that power. You know, Fanon as a humanist is concerned with the alienation of powers and colonialism is obviously a massive case of the alienation of power from the colonized to the colonizer. And state apparatuses are also forms of the alienation of power classically, famously, uh, just as class relations are forms of the alienation of power. And so I think one of the things that you're trying to do in the essay that's important is to get back a sense of anti-colonial politics as a form of politics that is about empowerment, which ought to include today building on the achievements of the decolonial turn in terms of having an awareness that, empower, that, that, that alienation and disempowerment don't merely take the um, aggressive form of um, uh, guns and bombs um, and and state violence, but also might take the form of humiliations and degradations, uh, apparently more subtle, but like uh, being given books that tell you about history in which you never appear and never feature except as a savage other. Um, and so being attentive, and it's not like decolonial studies, the first people to be aware of those nominally more subtle forms of violence. Obviously, Fanon, for example, is highly relevant. James Baldwin writes very lyrically about them, which is one of the reasons I think he's going through a kind of uh, revival of interest at the moment. Um, but it seems to me like what you're trying to do is to forge a sense that a decolonial politics isn't just, well, an anti-colonial politics isn't just this easily boxed up question called race and empire, separate from other things, but is part of a broader politics of empowerment, which is why it's of interest. Yeah, it just—it seemed to me that one of the things that you're trying to do in your essay, and one of the things that many of us are trying to do today, um, is to recover that lost 20th century sense that anti-colonial politics fit within a broader matrix, that the black power movement, for example, in Britain and America was developing alongside the women's liberation movement and alongside revived worker struggles as one part of a politics of what Fanon called disalienation, of recovering powers that have been alienated from you to others, whether it's to oppressors or to an impersonal logic of capital accumulation. Um, and that, that perhaps the aggressive particularism of the decolonial politics in which it's like, this is a wrong that was done to some people and it's theirs to talk about and it's their lived experience, um, uh, 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 loses the glories of the um, sense in which the colonial experience stands in as something very universal because it represents an alienation which people all over the world in all kinds of different forms can understand. Um, 
and um, and is therefore a kind of ground for solidarity and that decolonizing the world is therefore about empowering people, um, including along all kinds of axes that aren't obviously about race or nation or empire. Um, and am I right that that's, that's one thing that you're trying to recover is yeah. not just universalism of beyond the language of lived experience in, in, into a language of, um, of what we have in common, but the universalism of, of, imp- of a desire for empowerment. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's kind of, um, so that's also partly I, what I find in some indigenous studies critiques of decolonial studies is kind of, um, it rejects kind of this very particular kind of um, boxing off as it's, it's only these people can speak about these experiences kind of uh, approach and kind of building, trying to build broader solidarities against basically imperialism and settler colonialism, while acknowledging, for example, that settler colonialism is, in, is a different context than what we might call, or the continued settler colonialism is a different context to what we might call um, neocolonialism, um, and those being particular projects, but that there is kind of a sense that there's a common shared solidarity um, in those particular struggles. And I think um, I found... I found Nick Esther's work really helpful in kind of bridging, which I also kind of mentioned towards the end of the essay, in kind of bridging, for example, those two conversations between uh, kind of indigenous studies and the anti-colonial tradition um, and kind of giving this, giving these examples of like, for instance, the 1977 delegation of elders from, from different indigenous nations that went to the UN basically to articulate their claims for nationhood in this international basically family of nations um, and the support that was given by um, different national liberation movements and other kind of these other movements and that it's kind of like um, that it is a question of solidarity there between those different struggles and that sometimes that kind of solidarity is necessary to kind of achieve any type of even if they're small successes or large successes but that solidarity is very very necessary to achieve these things um, and I think it's kind of thinking about yeah and I think sometimes I do think about indigenous studies in relation to decolonial studies as indigenous studies being more aware of kind of linking themselves to these broader kind of solid of embedding itself in these broader solidarities. Whereas kind of, I think sometimes the decolonial study school tries to bracket itself off instead of basically reaching outwards. So I think that's one of the big kind of um, problems of that particular discourse. If that makes sense. It makes total sense. And it's, yeah, it's very much along the same lines that I was thinking. Um, a question from the chat, and then uh, I have uh, another before we say goodbye. Um, but a question from the chat is people asking um, your thoughts on the land back movement. Um, just um, in terms of, are there any, any specifics? or? Just- no, I mean, I, so I think I, I suspect people are interested in terms of this conversation being quite uh, Western centric in talking about the turn from uh, an anti-colonial politics of the colonization of land into a decolonial politics of university syllabi and statues. But of course, in South Africa, there's still a very live question about land. Um, and, uh, and, and what do you think of the language to which that is that is that a, a form of the old anti-colonial politics, the current land back movement? Or is that something um, very I mean, it depends in, in what context we're talking about the return of land, right? Whether we're talking about it in North America, in, in these different settler colonial contexts. And I think, because, you know, if we speak about it in North America, for example, we then have to think also about, always about um, kind of indigenous people's relationship to the land and how that's related to nationhood and freedom and these kinds of questions. Um, but I think, I don't know if I would want to make a, a broader claim about like all settler colonies and land back movements in all of those. But I think... Um, it's just, I think it's kind of a question that we've, in our conversations, kind of like, yeah, swerved around and um, 
but I think it's also just because I think it's uh, for me that's not necessarily my particular area of expertise. So I don't really want to make big judgments on it. If that makes sense. That makes total sense. Um, also, uh, I mean, it's uh, feel free to chip in, Annie uh, Barnaby. Annie, you're back with us. There were. Did you did you hear the question? Did you catch the question, Annie? Oh, I don't know if you are with us in terms of sound. Um, oh, so Annie says she didn't hear. So. Um, uh, so people in the chat were asking, and someone has just framed it in terms of me and Kevin both talking about the potential universal solidarities um, uh, of, of empowerment that anti-colonial struggle represents. And people have asked about questions of land, those classic questions of colonization and the land back movement. Um, and uh, and someone then saying, okay, so how universal can we really talk about the uh, colonial uh, language being um, if like some people have the land and others don't? Um, so, um, and, and Kevin just raised this point about the difficulty of talking about land back in the American case and sometimes the difficulty of trying to reverse histories. And I know Annie has thoughts about this, um, and, and the, the, the difficulty of making anti-colonial politics about reversing history, uh, rather than about it seeing what kind of futures are possible. So what do you think about debates around, uh, there's, there's debate in North America about indigenous peoples, there's debate in South Africa about the return of land, um, and Kevin was asking your thoughts on that, Annie. Yeah. Um, okay, so two things. I think firstly on the question of language, I, I think the two are kind of my responses to the two are structured by one dichotomy in my mind is, um, is the resistance to colonialism or coloniality centered on a return to some pure history um, or is it centered on salvaging what scraps we can find in the rubble? Um, those scraps being some form of abundance, right? Or reorganizing society such that everybody is able to um, live the best possible standard of living, right? And I think there is a sense in which um, I don't know if this is a, a an easy comparison, but I think about earlier on we had on the screen the um, image of the Benin bronzes. Um, and I think about how much of the discussion contemporarily around um, land, around artifacts are centered on whether intentional or unintentional, the, um, the economic potential or the potential for commodification, right? And who ought to have a right to that commodification or the, the proceeds of that commodification. And so, um, I think that firstly, when we when we think about the when we think about resistance to colonialism, we think about anti-imperialism, we think about what liberation might look like. I think, to an extent, where anyone spoke about. Oh, okay. oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Earlier on, um, Barnaby was speaking about essentially who are the heirs of revolution, right? And what what does solidarity mean? It means that everybody, 
everybody ought to share in that. And I do think that there is a way in which we find ourselves or land ourselves back in particularism, land ourselves back in a space where... It, yeah, we, uh, we're doing all the important work well. Um, yeah, I think yeah. just maybe, maybe yeah. a final point. Maybe I don't know if that builds on it in any way, but I think, um, um, so there's kind of, I think there's a small part that I have in the essay on, on the, on the, on the essay, decolonization is not a metaphor. And I think it's kind of, because I think, um, I agree with that essay to a certain point. And I think at one point it tries to sever kind of the ties between itself and its own position. Um, kind of the, basically tries to make like a very sharp distinction between kind of the land back arguments, um, and broader anti-colonial struggles. And I think it's kind of right to be careful of subsuming kind of that particular problematic within the context of just broader anti-imperialist conversations. But I think it's not helpful to kind of make a, basically a separation and try to distance oneself from, uh, from that, from that other kind of anti-colonial or anti-imperialist project. And I think it's kind of, um, so uh, Nick Esses does this again, kind of like an interesting thing of comparing, for example, and which also relates to something Annie was just saying, uh, kind of trying to bring together the indigenous activist uh, Russell Means and Amilcar Cabral and kind of like their conception of culture as like not this kind of static, um, kind of archaic thing that is from the past and doesn't really move and doesn't really develop or whatever. But it's kind of um, kind of seeing those elements of cultures that have um, that have survived kind of the process of colonization, and that being the kind of thing that um, one is concerned with preserving or that one wants to build on, and not necessarily the process of going back and finding this kind of pure kind of um, moment. Yeah, but I think um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Um, so this has been fantastic. And um, uh, we have been dealing, as we do with my crappy technology and with Annie's beautiful daughter. Um, uh, I just wanted to ask one last question. Um, which I was, I wanted to ask to Annie and Kevin, but, um, uh, while Annie's uh, de dealing with Maisha, I'll, I'll ask Kevin, um, which is about having charted some of the problems with contemporary, uh, decolonization politics, um, having thought through some of the histories that we want to recover while being aware of the differences of our moment from theirs. I just wanted to ask you to give an account, um, of what you think a good kind of revived anti-colonial politics in our moments would and does look like. Um, there's a there's a story on my mind as I um, just to give you a moment to think about that as I say this, which is around the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement's revival in 2020. Um, I was living in a multiracial working class part of London. And the police do regular swoops, um, uh, checking the IDs of migrant uh, drivers, delivery drivers. And one day when they arrived in one of these big swoops and were trying to arrest some guy, spontaneously on a weekday afternoon, um, 
local black and brown people who were walking past saw this and just weren't having it and neighbors came out into the streets and soon there was a crowd of 150 people screaming at the police and it was just after the statue of colston the slave trader had been toppled in bristol and there was clearly a feeling of a moment uh, in which people those people on the streets understood exactly what it meant to say black lives matter and they were screaming at the police uh fury that the police get away with harassing and abusing them and they thought that in this moment they felt strengthened and emboldened to say you shouldn't get away with that anymore and using old language um uh, shouting at the police as they were forced to retreat into a van all the pigs go back to the farm uh, and shouting it uh in a in a coalition that emerged on the street first as black people then as black and brown people and then as white plus white people who were neighbors of this guy who came out onto the street as well and it was kind of like a picturesque moment of left romance but it really happened as a moment of solidarity against an oppressive force and the thing that was striking to me was that was the beginning of a black lives matter um uh, um uh, demand that then was so quickly transformed with the kinds of people who were invited as spokespeople onto TV and the kinds of hand-wringing conversations that were had in the liberal media into a conversation about the past and about statues and about uh, uh, street names um, and about symbols. Um, and you've been trying to chart a way in which we don't abandon the conversation about symbols, but connect it to the material uh, that created the symbols, the, the histories of power, economic power, political power that creates cultural power. Um, so I had that moment of exhilaration that there was I'm back and so I wanted to ask you Kevin um, what you think an enduring politics of um, maybe you'd call it decolonization maybe you'd call it anti-colonialism again what would you call it um, that was able to ask these questions in a positive way would look like today um, I think it's kind of, I think it's the question, the very, very difficult question that you raise of kind of channeling that energy that exists at a, particular, at a certain moment. And then that might be a way in the next moment. And it's kind of, I think it's not being scared. I think it's building the right organizational forms because it's not, it's being not, not, not being scared of institutions or institutionalizing something that must at some point be channeled into something else. It's the kind of energy that's a spontaneous, like what you described, for example, is kind of a spontaneous eruption of kind of like an anti-racist solidarity. Um, but that also needs an avenue that needs somewhere to go and that needs a certain organizing capacity and kind of meetings and kind of ways of figuring out how you can kind of work from that. And I think sometimes it becomes, um, when we use the language of decolon, I think just to bring it back, when you use the language of decolonization as this very vague signifier, it stands very much in opposition to kind of building these organizations and institutions. And it kind of posits itself more against that kind of way of practically kind of trying to harness that kind of um, very impulsive solidarity uh, solidarity or revolutionary energy and trying to channel that into something that's a long-term project that kind of tries to undo some of the legacies of colonialism. So a positive project of naming the things we want to abolish, moving beyond just abolition as a language which doesn't name an agent to uh, liberation, emancipation, um, uh, not just abolishing things, but a transition from those things to better things and building the institutions that can allow us to do so. And those things are things that range from police and prisons and the nation, um, are all legacies of class and colonial power through to uh, uh, everyday racist interactions and, and all those things as, as, as a single identified problem uh, rather than allowing them to be hived off into separate categories, right? Yeah. Um, 
Kevin, of course, it's been great to have you. Um, um, it's been great to talk to you, Barnaby, and Annie as well, of course. Um, I think this has been, a, it's been great to kind of just think through some ideas. And I think that's why the Salvage Live events are so good, because I think it's just like difficult questions and we think them through together. And I think that's a, a great format going forward. So thank you guys so much for the work you've been doing. Thank you for joining us. It's been a wonderful discussion. And Annie would be here to say goodbye as well, but she's changing a nappy and doing <laughs> in the world. Um, so uh, it's been wonderful to have you. And, it's, and thank you so much to everyone for tuning in. This has been Salvage Live, and we'll be back soon with more. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.